When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everybody to the bar. It's your guest host David Knight from Exposit the Word, standing in for Dwayne. Different host, same show, and same top top guests. So let's get to it because I am super excited to be coming through your speakers, your earbuds, wherever you are listening to the bar. And as always, we are grateful that you are listening and we love to start off the show by thanking you, the listeners, for tuning in and supporting the show. And just like we do every Tuesday, we bring you another awesome guest and this one is no different. Hello and welcome, Dr. Matthew Barrett. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Matthew, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. (laughs) Well, I'm a professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, I also am the... um, well, I, I'm the editor of Credo magazine, and I host the Credo podcast. And I'm also the director of the Center for Classical Theology, which we just started up, and we have our inaugural lecture coming this November in San Antonio, Texas. Um, what else? What else do you need to know about me? Uh, I I grew up as a Lakers fan, so Los Angeles. <laughs> And uh, though we we do root for the Chiefs now that we're in Kansas City, so we we moved here, and Patrick Mahomes was drafted at the same time. We we're close. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty. Well, it doesn't sound like you've got much time for anything else, Matthew. You sound like a very busy man. Well, I enjoy writing and teaching. And I, I teach PhD students here as well as master students, uh, so that keeps me very busy. And of course, yeah. I love writing uh, when I when I can fit in uh, a couple minutes here and there. I enjoy writing some books. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we're going to be talking about your brand new book um, today. Um, before we do that, Matthew, how did you become a Christian? Well, uh, I became a Christian at a very young age, and my parents were just faithful to take me to church and where the Bible was preached. And I began to ask questions. And I think looking back, the Holy Spirit was at work within me to convict me of sin, uh, to, to uh, raise some curious questions in my mind about God and Christ and, and everything in between. Um, and so the Lord worked in my heart at a young age uh, through very ordinary means of grace. Uh, in very quiet ways, uh, so that uh, goodness, I've been a Christian since I can since I can remember, and that's been yeah. that's been a blessing. Yeah. And when did you um, first feel the call into Christian ministry for work? I think when I was in college. Yeah, uh, I you know had studied the Bible uh, most of my life, but. Uh, and when I went to college, it was there that I started to read theology, and that really helped bring me to maturity in ways that uh, I needed. And 
before I graduated, I, I sensed um, just from the uh, pastors and professors that were in my life that uh, pursuing seminary was a good move and one I would enjoy, but also one that might lead me to what I do now. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, I, I pastor as well. I'm a, uh, one of the pastors at Emmaus Church here in Kansas City. And and so I enjoy having one foot in the uh, pulpit and one foot over in the lectern at the same time. Yeah. If you, if you wasn't wearing all the hats that you are now, Matthew, what do you think you would have done for a living if you didn't go into Christian ministry? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you ask my students, uh, they will tell you uh, I probably would have been the godfather. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, But I don't know. You know, so many of of the theologians uh, of the past were lawyers. I think of Luther and Calvin. Um, So maybe a lawyer. I don't know. Though I will say this for what it's worth. I think I would make a, a pretty great DJ. Yeah, yeah, really. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll find out why towards the end of this interview, because I'm going to be asking you about what your favorite music is. So, I'll... Okay. <laughs> we'll look forward to hearing your answers for that, Matthew. We, we, we're here to talk about your new book. It's great. It's causing quite the stir on the internet. Is a, is a real buzz about this book, uh, The Reformation as Renewal. So tell us what it's all about, Matthew. Oh, goodness. Well, it's a big book. And uh, even though it's a big book, uh, each chapter, I hope, is lively. Uh, It it really, in that sense, uh, I hope that readers are just turning the pages because from one chapter to the next, you're visiting different corners of the Reformation. Um, What's the book about? Well, there there are many books, good books, on the Reformation. So it's not just another book on the Reformation, despite its title. (laughs) Uh, The book really is a a fresh look at the 16th century, one that helps us understand what it means to be Protestant. And I think that in some ways today, uh, we have strayed from that original vision and identity and, and that origin. How so? Well, I think in, in some days today, Protestants can at times uh, hear certain narratives that give us the impression that to be Protestant uh, is to be schismatic or uh, a rebel or uh, someone who is radical and has departed from the Church Catholic, and here I'm using the word Catholic, not not uh, referring to Roman Catholic, but the capital C, but lower C Catholic. Uh, think of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That word Catholic simply means universal, the universal church. And so sometimes we've been given a narrative that uh, leads us in a very different direction. Um, you know, there's some out there who will blame uh, the first Protestants for uh, severing themselves from the church and for even uh, severing themselves from, uh, say, the community, the communion of the saints uh, in the name of the Sola Scriptura, as if uh, to be Protestant was to be an individual. Uh, and and with that, uh, not just severing themselves from the communion of the saints, but even severing themselves from what it means to believe in God's uh, real presence in this world, um, severing themselves from a, a, a real participation in the likeness of God, and so on. And and that narrative is just one, but that narrative uh, really paints Protestants from the beginning as if they are uh, responsible or even to blame for, say, modernism that came later, mm-hmm. or secularism as we see it today. Uh, other times you'll hear other narratives that uh, really celebrate that same uh, narrative as if to be Protestant is to dispense with tradition and to break from the past. Um, and, and sometimes certain uh, caricatures feed that narrative, right? The Dark Ages, you know, right. it sounds right. very spooky and scary. Hmm. Um, and the impression is given that uh, all was lost 
and darkness and the, and the church really disappeared until the reformer showed up. Well, I push back against those narratives and say, actually, the situation is more complicated than that. Um, what was at the core of what the Reformation was about what the reformers thought they were doing. Well, I think when you act, when you look at their writings, their polemics, their commentaries, their theology, one thing keeps coming to rising to the surface. No matter who, what pocket of the Reformation you, you hit, it keeps rising to the surface, and it's this constant theme of renewal. Uh, they said, "No, we are we are not innovators. We are not heretics." But we are uh, in. We have the right to claim that one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church as much as you do. They're saying this both um, to to their opponents, and so in that spirit, uh, yes, certainly there are uh, certain doctrines that they are are quite frustrated about. But they consider those the real innovations, not. Uh, the Protestant faith itself. And so in that spirit, they're trying to retrieve the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that has uh, started with the apostles and came down through the ages, even the medieval ages, in order to counter later innovations uh, for the sake of bringing about renewal in the 16th century. Well, that's a very different narrative, a very different vision then of what it meant to reform. Yeah. So what's the history of Protestant? Where does the name even come from, Matthew? You know, it's so funny because this often happens in history. Um, sometimes the names that we receive and just wear, you know, as a badge often come from those who, who didn't like us to begin with. <laughs> right. And that's the case um, with so many labels in history. Um, sometimes the word was used originally to say, oh, those Protestants, those uh, th those people who are protesting. And um, in many ways, the name is acceptable, but it doesn't quite capture everything that th the Protestants were after. It tends to give the impression that we, uh, our fathers, were just protesters there was some truth to that. You, who, who can forget, right? Luther's yeah. um, frustration, pastoral frustration with indulgences, and uh, uh, so much more, or, or abuses and authority in the papacy, and so on. At the same time, though, Luther would have been the first one to say, uh, we are uh, not just protesting, but we are obedient servants. Uh, there's a great phrase from the historian Jaroslav Pelikan, who says uh, there, there was, yes, this Protestant principle that we know so well. Sometimes you hear it in the, the five solas. But there was also a Catholic substance that was, was um, absolutely essential to what it meant to be Protestant. And I think Luther, uh, despite his very loud, uh, uh, very loud and noisy uh, irritation at Rome, at the same time, Luther would have been uh, mortified if someone would have said to him, you are not Catholic. Uh, there's this, it's not just Luther, um, Calvin felt the same way. There's this great yeah. quote by historian uh, Bruce Gordon in his biography of Calvin, where he says if if uh, Calvin would have uh, heard uh, those words that he was not Catholic, uh, well he might have he might have tore his hair out. <laughs> right. um, in other words, what yeah. what all these historians are trying to communicate is that uh, the reformers did not see themselves as less Catholic or Catholicity, if we could use that word. Um, than their opponents, but perhaps even more so, uh, which sometimes irritated their opponents. I think a great example of this, if, if, if listeners are thinking, okay, you know, I give lots of examples in my book, but a great example of this is take a trip over to the Swiss. Think of uh, a reformer, Heinrich Bullinger, who is uh, Zwingli's uh, um, successor. 
Um, one of the things that he does, he's very eager uh, to create unity between the reformers. And so one of the things he does is he begins to uh, preach and write, and out of his preaching and writing comes this emphasis on what he called uh, the Holy Catholic Church. You can see this in what we call his decades. Um, one of them, the fifth one, so this is 1551, but the fifth decade, it's, the title says it all. Here's the title. Is the Reformation a departure from the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, as Rome uh, claimed, or is, is the Reformation a proper albeit evangelical renewal of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And Bollinger takes that question head on. And he says, uh, no, we are an evangelical renewal of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church, despite what Rome is telling you. So that was quite central to what it meant to be Protestant. Yes, they're protesting, but for them, that did not mean a throwing off of the church before them in, in its totality, but rather a renewal of that church in its best and proper sense. Yeah. You, you mentioned there that there was a call for unity. What, what, what did that unity look like within the reformers? I mean, and, and what were the divisions? What were they disunited about during that time? Well, uh, we probably need to admit that it was not easy. <laughs> Um, sometimes that unity did not happen. Um, I just meant, mentioned Heinrich Bullinger. One of the reasons why this whole question comes up and, and becomes a priority for him is because he's frustrated with Luther, and he's very vocal about it. Um, he admires Luther's many contributions, but he's also frustrated with Luther for splitting with Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. Uh, not that they shouldn't have their differences, but uh, that the split would be so strong as to break the Reformation apart. So, as you can imagine, uh, those divisions sometimes were painful, and we see them to this day. Uh, as much yeah, as we would love to just have, you know, a Protestant church, <laughs> uh, those divisions continue to this day, and they can be painful. However, they, we also have to remember that the divisions uh, usually are over matters that are secondary or sometimes even tertiary. And so when the reformers, yes, are at odds with each other, and it does happen, uh, we have to remember that despite that division, they are unified in the most fundamental ways. And that's key to keep in mind. And that's where my book comes through, because whether you're in Zurich or Geneva or Wittenberg, uh, whether whether you're over in Italy, or, or almost regardless of where you are, uh, despite differences in language and, um, and uh, different church customs and so much politics and so much more, there's this constant chorus that keeps coming through with all of them. They're more or less unanimous that they are renewing the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and they are doing that on the basis of Christian orthodoxy, uh, standing, on, standing on that foundation, and they are able to link arms then as well over what God has done uh, through Jesus Christ, their Savior. And from there, the application of that work and um, everything from justification to glorification. Yeah. So, on the surface, because this is a this is a, a, a live issue, right? Uh, to this day, uh, Roman Catholics will say to Protestants, "Look at you! You're a mess. Uh, you're you're all divided from each other, and look at all your denominations." And it's not that we don't need to hear that. Uh, I think we could all benefit from pursuing the unity of Christ as far as possible. But it does seem to miss the point, doesn't it? Because our what, what can appear on the surface as, as division, uh, nonetheless, 
we do have a unity with one another on who God is, on, on who Christ is, on, and, and what God has done to redeem us. And that is something that is not bound up in that which is external, whether it be political or ecclesiastical um, uh, institutions, um, a, a succession, uh, a line of succession, uh, and so much more, but rather it's bound up primarily in that which is uh, invisible faith in who God is and what he's done in Christ. That is something so uh, unbreakable, so immutable, um, that the Reformers, for all their differences, were able to say, yes, that binds us, and 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 that um, is that that uh, unity is so strong that not even our worst differences can break it apart. And in that sense, they 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 stood together in the end. Yeah, yeah, it's really helpful. Thank you. In broad brushstrokes, what happened between the time of the apostles and the Reformation? <laughs> oh, a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, we would need a couple days, wouldn't we? I think this is an important question, though, because sometimes um, for all kinds of reasons, we get the impression, especially as Protestants, that, well, to be Protestant is something quite different than what the Church Fathers represented or even the medieval theologians were about. Now, uh, certainly there, there are differences but I think where we risk misunderstanding history and our history is to assume uh, that there is more dissimilarity than continuity, right? Uh, the Reformers, it was a priority for them, uh, a major priority for them to demonstrate that they were in continuity with strategic church fathers and, yes, even medieval theologians. In fact, it, even those categories would have been somewhat strange to them, maybe not entirely, but somewhat strange. They're nice and neat categories for us in the 21st century. Looking back, we can very neatly look and say, oh, let's divide this up. But when you read Calvin, for example, sometimes he'll just say the church fathers. and He's referring to a slew of individuals from Irenaeus to Bernard. And so there's not those very strict divisions in their mind, at least not all the time. What happens when you look at what they're saying? Well, whether it's Thomas Cranmer, uh, who is uh, putting together the Book of Common Prayer, whether it's Melanchthon, who has an instrumental hand in the Augsburg Confession, uh, whether it's uh, Luther uh, and and uh, producing a German Bible, uh, whether it's Calvin in Geneva uh, who is writing his institutes, whether it's Peter Martyr Vermigli uh, and Martin Bootser who are writing not only commentaries but works of theology. Wherever you look, you find a common denominator. Throughout all those works, they are laboring intensely to demonstrate that line of continuity between them and the church fathers who came before them. And that's really key, because just take an example here, take the doctrine of grace. Well, are they innovators with their understanding of grace from, from predestination to uh, justification to glorification, they did not think so. Uh, so yes, they go back to the Bible first and foremost, because the Bible is their, their supreme authority. But they are not doing so alone. That's the key. They are inviting Augustine, because they recognize that Augustine, especially in those that Pelagian controversy and semi-Pelagian controversies, Augustine uh, really understood the scriptures well, and his emphasis on the primacy of grace was something, well, that was a, uh, the same emphasis that the Reformers were retrieving and bringing into the 16th century. Of course, he's not the only one, 
um, many, many others, uh, other church fathers as well, uh, came to their attention. Creeds, councils, something very similar could be said. Uh, towards the, the end of Luther's life, he writes to the churches. He's frustrated because they're not as they're, they have not reformed as much as you would like. And he's also concerned that they don't even understand the basics of Christian orthodoxy. And so he writes to the churches and, and he says, you need, he, he writes a little book called The Three Symbols on Three Creeds. And then he adds that the Nicene Creed, he says, you need to know these. Uh, these, these are essential for you to even know who God is. And, and not only that, but, but we're accountable to these. Yes, they're not scripture, which is our final authority, but they do have uh, a subservient authority because of their faithfulness and because the church came together uh, to declare over against heresy what is true and right and biblical and good. And so Luther says to the churches, uh, you should be seeing the Nicene Creed in church. <laughs> uh, it would have been interesting to see what would what that sound like in German. These are just a few <laughs> examples, but the point is, uh, this was intentional for them. Uh, they were quite adamant about it because they did not, in the least, desire to give Rome the opportunity or the impression, in the very slightest, that they were somehow uh, uh, starting something completely new from, from Christianity before them, or uh, that they were rebels and, and therefore heretics. Uh, they yeah. knew that charge. They heard it often. Um, Calvin, right? Calvin, when he's exiled from Geneva, well, Cardinal Sadaletto writes to Geneva telling them to come back. And Calvin is right on point when he responds to say, you're telling the Genevans to come back to Mother Church, but we have not strayed, he says, from being faithful sons and daughters of the church universal. Uh, in England, something similar happens. Uh, it's so fascinating because in England, another country, another language entirely, and yet the same emphasis comes through, whether it's John Fox or Thomas Cranmer or John Jewell. John Jewell writes an entire book. Now that Christianity is, is on the rise in England in, in a more theological way, he's trying to demonstrate where, where do we stand in the history of the church? Um, does the Church of England, can it claim, uh, just as much as Rome has, can it claim uh, to, be, to be the rightful heir of, of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And I'll add one more thing, uh, just to throw this out there to, to really get um, listeners and viewers, uh, maybe, maybe this will, you know, push them over the edge to, to start exploring the book. Uh, this included medieval theologians. Believe it or not, um, and so for in the in the eyes of the reformers, they I think sometimes we think of them as as a complete deviation from say scholasticism. But many of them were raised in the scholastic method and continue to use it uh, for good purposes in their own schools, even after they uh, turned to the to to the evangelical cause. And so, believe it or not, uh, though they had. Uh, yes, certain disagreements with someone like a Thomas Aquinas. They also, at the same time, understood we have much uh, continuity with a scholastic like Thomas Aquinas because of his faithfulness on so many matters of Christian orthodoxy. And surely on those points, we do not want to, to differ. And so this was essential because as the 16th century moved into the 17th century, new challenges New challenges came at the reformers and, and the Protestants, like Socinianism, and suddenly uh, it wasn't sufficient to only dwell on matters of, say, justification or purgatory or or papal authority. Now they had to broaden their horizons and to start writing entire works of theology on the whole scope of 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 the faith, including who is God, who is Christ, um, and, and so much more, which meant, yes, they, they then found so many of those medieval classics before them uh, quite, uh, quite timely and, and mm -hmm. these new polemical challenges. Yeah. 
Excellent. Really helpful. To, to the average person in the pew uh, for those 1,500 years, how, how clear was the gospel? I mean, the caricatured picture um, of those 1,500 years is that nobody was saved, right? So yes. how, how clear was the gospel during those 1,500 years, uh, Matthew? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes that caricature gets the best of us. <laughs> um, I don't want to give the wrong impression Um Certainly, there were there were periods in which, um, because of say the rise of or or the abuse of indulgences, for example, um, there certainly were periods where goodness people were were terribly misled. I think I think that is something that the reformers felt very strongly about, and. When you look at their polemic, oftentimes they're not uh, their, their first concern is is not so much with the people as it is with those who have misled them. <laughs> That's who they're quite a, quite stern with because they they in one sense they're saying uh, you should know better, or or they are questioning their motives to say. You uh, are peddling these indulgences for reasons that are not Christian at all, but are far more political uh, or financial and or, or, or have a, a bit more to do with ecclesiastical ambition than the true care of souls. Now, that said, um, we should also remember that uh, we, we shouldn't swing the pendulum to the other extreme where we start to think, well, uh, the reformers thought uh, there was no light whatsoever. We need to remember that uh, from from Luther to Calvin to Bullinger and so many others, they were still adamant that, no, if you've been baptized um, in Rome, that is, they were, the reformers said, no, we will receive you. Uh, we will receive your baptism because they believe, nonetheless, despite corruptions, that's still a true baptism. Now, regardless of whether, you know, we today want to, you know, agree or disagree with that, the point is yeah. they they still looked at, at those in the church and said, despite these, these recent corruptions uh, that have occurred, nonetheless— uh, we see the seeds of what is true and right and good, which which shouldn't be surprising to us because that's in the very word re- reformation, reform. Uh, that's a different stance than the radicals. The radicals were very different. Now, they were diverse. Uh, I don't want to paint them all in the same light, but but some of the most extreme uh, they took a, a far more radical take on the church. For some of them, they said uh, tradition needs to be discarded because the church has been completely in the dark and lost. Some of them said even since the apostolic age. And then it was a, a convenient narrative, right? Because then they said, we're here. <laughs> right. We're the saviors and, and we have brought um, true salvation in uh, the church back for the first time. The reformers did not like that narrative. Uh, they did not appreciate it. They often rebuked it because they said, no, that's sectarian. Um, that is to that is the type of thinking, they said, uh, that would lead us to deny the very words of Jesus, who said, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will, will prevail against it. And so the reformers put a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and God's providence to say, yes, even in hard times, even in dark times, nonetheless, God has been faithful to build his church, even in places where uh, we we uh, we might not look for it. Uh, God works in surprising ways to build his church down through the ages. This became a pivotal argument because when Rome tried to pull certain Protestant churches back into its fold, uh, the reformers responded and said, "Hold on a second. You're claiming that they that our people need to come back to Rome 
uh, even though you kicked us out, <laughs> another story, but need to, to come back to Rome because uh, that's where the true church is found. And interesting here, the reformers said, you have defined Catholicity in a way that is far too narrow because you've limited it to Rome. And Calvin in particular said, what about the entire East? Have, have they just been damned for eternity for the last uh, 600 years or so? And Calvin, this was a, a, a moment where Calvin was trying to sh- put the spotlight on them to say, listen, uh, you're saying that we are the innovators, but, but we are actually defining our Catholicity much broader than you, uh, because we see how God has been at work uh, across the centuries uh, to ensure that his church continues, even though in the 16th century, uh, yes, it does need quite a bit of renewal. So yeah. I know that's not an easy narrative, as sometimes the popular you know caricatures go, but I think it's one that's more accurate to what the Reformers thought um, they were doing and, and what they thought Catholicity was all about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew, I have at least 20 follow-up questions, but we're not going to have time for me to ask any of them. Another reason to go out and buy this book, right? You just cover, and you, you cover the Eastern Church as well, don't you, in, in the book, because that's a, a fascinating and probably surprising uh, a bit of information as well, but a lot of people probably won't um, be aware of. Do you want to just touch on that very, very briefly? Yeah, so uh, I spend, obviously, a lot of the book looking at the 16th century, and I look at each pocket of the Reformation, I look at the Counter-Reformation, I look at the Radicals. However, I do think it, in order to understand it, what, what I've been saying, it's quite crucial to, to begin not with the 16th century, <laughs> as, as much as we, we love that period, but to go back and to understand what was happening uh, from the Apostles uh, right up into the late Middle Ages. Uh, it's a complicated period. Uh, and it's a diverse period. And so I do spend actually a couple hundred pages just introducing readers uh, to some of the, the basics of, uh, of say, the Middle Ages. So why, why are there these early and then high and then late Middle Ages? What, what are the differences between those? And I also uh, attempt to show, okay, why are the Reformers mentioning the Church Father so much? Um, and how does this whole conversation, how, why does it revolve not just around, say, church practice uh, or theology, but even philosophy to a certain extent? Um, so I spent a good amount of time uh, looking. I mean, we, you really need a whole other volume <laughs> because it's, it's so rich. Uh, that period is so rich. But I do spend a good amount of time trying to show, for instance, why did Luther think of himself uh, truly as an Augustinian? Uh, why did, say, uh, a Martin Bootser, uh, even after he had uh, turned to evangelical commitments, why did he think of himself as Augustinian and even Thomistic in his understanding of, say, uh, the doctrine of God or even the primacy of grace? Well, in order to understand why they they uh, define themselves in those terms, uh, you have to understand uh, something of, say, the early church through the church fathers. And so I spent a good amount of, of time there. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. You've mentioned lots of names already during our conversation, and some of which uh, our viewers and listeners may not be familiar with. Uh, who are some important lesser known people that you would recommend our listeners to become more familiar with? In terms of the reformers? Yeah. Well, uh, I think that I'm guessing that many of our uh, of the listeners are familiar with the obvious names, right? Martin Luther uh, would be, of course, first on the list. I think uh, it's really helpful, though, if you can f- be, become uh, good friends with the the breadth of, of reformers. We sometimes forget that as much as things started with Luther, they did not end with Luther. Um, who might those be? Well, uh, I would encourage you to read Philip Melanchthon, um, isn't it interesting that 
Luther, uh, God really gifted him in many ways. Uh, his polemical edge <laughs> was one of them. Could be a blessing. Sometimes it was a curse. But Melanchthon is, uh, has different gifts. Uh, Melanchthon is able to write some theology more systematically, which proves to be important for the Lutherans and their confessions. Uh, another person I would recommend is uh, read someone, uh, for example, uh, read someone that is is maybe more of an outlier, an outlier in our contemporary imagination, like a Peter Martyr Vermigli. Uh, isn't it interesting that uh, here is this uh, this bright mind? And whether he's preaching sermons or writing books, he's not only aware of, say, the exegetical debates, but he's quite mindful of, and he's trying to imagine how should our Protestant faith be brought into the contours of, say, Christian philosophy from, and the way that, say, an Augustine uh, or an Anselm or, or a Thomas Aquinas understood faith, seeking understanding, and then that brought them uh, into conversation with a Plato or an Aristotle or so many others. Uh, he's wrestling with those questions uh, very early on. Uh, if I could just throw out one more example, I would say don't neglect the English Reformation either. Uh, you, do, you don't have to be Anglican to appreciate uh, Tyndale or Thomas Cranmer. Um, I think uh, Cranmer in particular, his life is, is, is just as much a book as, is, uh, as were his writings. Uh, I would encourage uh, listeners and viewers to study his life because here's a man who is truly uh, in the middle, uh, stuck between what his his true, genuine, authentic Reformation commitments um, and the political pressure. <laughs> he right. is trying not to, to literally lose his head <laughs> in light of Henry. Right, right. Uh, and in the midst of all of that, as he's trying to endure, uh, from Cranmer comes... Uh, a beautiful piece of literature that not only emphasizes the, that Protestant principle, but puts it uh, in, in, it locates it within uh, the church down through the ages so that the Church of England at the time uh, could confess, say, the doctrine of the Trinity just uh, as adamantly as they're confessing, say, justification by faith. So those are just a few but the most important thing I could say is go back to the original sources. Uh, as much as I love reading books about the Reformation, go back to the original sources and, and read the Reformers for yourself. I think you will be surprised when you discover this emphasis on renewal that, that we've been referring to. It comes up everywhere. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Really helpful. Thank you. If the reformers were alive today, what do you think they would have to say about Western Christianity? Oh my! <laughs> uh, I think they would have a lot to say. Um, let me just give a few examples. Uh, first of all, they would have been shocked and disturbed, very disturbed, to see their names used to uh, justify or explain the Enlightenment. Uh, sometimes Luther, we have to be careful as Protestants because in our excitement to sometimes celebrate Luther and the Reformation, we can paint him at the Diet of Worms as if he is this Enlightenment man standing as an individual, throwing off, uh, throwing off, the church and tradition, and um, he's going to stand on his own two feet. Uh, I think Luther's words, though, reveal something different. 
Um, he's standing not by himself, uh, not by his own reason or his own insistence or stubbornness. <laughs> um, he hasn't thrown off the church. In fact, he is so nervous because he thinks, I am trying to, to save the church that I know to be true, despite what I see in front of me. And for that, he needs scripture, of course. But he also says he needs right reason to interpret scripture uh, with the church universal before him. Uh, and he slowly but surely learns that that's actually in his favor. Now, that's the first thing, is I think they would have been disturbed to find out that not long after them, there would be a break between faith and reason. There would be a break between uh, theology and philosophy. There would be this divide but, uh, that, that permeated um, so much of, of church and, and then even society as they knew it. Uh, the second thing I would say, and this one is quite pointed like they all are, um, <laughs> I think the reformers might rebuke us as well for uh, neglecting and even compromising on matters of orthodoxy. Um, when you look at the 16th century, they are concerned first and foremost with uh, polemical issues around, say, justification, um, authority in the papacy, and everything in between uh, those issues. But they don't feel the need to uh, debate and argue over matters of orthodoxy because there's just the assumption that there uh, is agreement and continuity, and they dare not, uh, you know, go. And in fact, when the radicals do, uh, when the radicals start to question even matters of orthodoxy, the reformers are just livid because they say, you're, you are going to give credence to that accusation that we are innovators, that we are sectarian. So they don't tolerate it in the slightest. Um, that said, I think they would be appalled to see that in the aftermath of, say, modern theology, in areas like the Trinity, the attributes of God and Christology, that evangelicals today... Um, at best, have modified those doctrines. At worst, have even rejected some of them uh, in, in or core components of them. I think they would issue a very strong rebuke um, because in their minds, that would undermine their entire project altogether. Um, how are we supposed to talk about what God has done if we do not have a fundamental uh, conviction of who he is. Uh, so it's, and then the third thing I, I would just add to all this is I, I do wonder if the reformers would sit us down <laughs> and they would have a word with us about church itself. Uh, why, they might ask, has church become such a performance? Uh, why has it taken a turn towards the individual, the self? Why has it become so pragmatic in its orientation? Um, what, how they would be baffled. How can you have people who go to church uh, but have no commitment to a church, mm. and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. I think on the positive side, what they would want, they would say to encourage us is uh, they labored so hard in, in the midst, midst of so much on the line, including their own lives. They, they did worry, will we live to see the Reformation through? Uh, but they labored so hard to ensure that the church was a rich experience that revolved around God, yeah. something quite objective. And 
And this explains, and I do give this a lot of attention in my book. I even give examples of like liturgy. Um, why, why were they so concerned about liturgy? Well, because they were determined uh, to both catechize the people and write sound doctrine, doctrine as as Paul says, as Paul says, uh, and then at the same time, uh, that was meant to then bring about worship, right? right. And so everything from uh, the the reading of the scriptures to a baptism to the Lord's Supper uh, to uh, saying uh, the Apostles' Creed together, and so much more. All of this was meant to bring the church together as an assembly, united around uh, this sound doctrine, to confess it for the sake of participating in the great salvation that God had accomplished for them. Yeah, That's a very different um, picture of the church than I, I think we sometimes see today. And I think uh, all three of these, uh, though there's probably much more, all three of these areas uh, would be deeply concerning to them, not simply for the sake of, you know, alignment with them, but more fundamentally for the sake of the soul of the church itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, absolutely fascinating fascinating stuff and we're about to take a very quick break and then we're going to come back and ask you the free signature bar questions without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Matthew, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready? I hope so. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. So here we go. <laughs> well, question one links into you wanting to be a DJ. Uh, what kind of music do you listen to? <laughs> I, 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 am, I, I tell people uh, I am as dogmatic as they come when it comes to theology as conservative as they come, but I'm as liberal as I come when I come when it comes to my taste of, and love for different genres of music. <laughs> so uh, any day when I'm writing, and uh, those you know my colleagues and, and other offices probably could complain about this. It it might be the Beatles, um, or it it might be Alicia Keys on the piano. Uh, um, so. I uh, I love music, and if I had to maybe pick a few, I would say at the at my heart is uh, the blues, the blues. Right. Uh, someone like Muddy Waters, um, but then if I had to, you know, get into my uh, a, a more party spirit, uh, I, I would have to say uh, something like R and B. Uh, is is also yeah. a close second, a close second to be sure. <laughs> well, Matthew, if, if this if this theology stuff all goes wrong, I can see you having a career as a DJ. You know, <laughs> maybe I can see maybe. you being popular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next signature bar question: What book or books are you currently reading? Wow. Um, well, I 
right now, um, in fact, tonight, uh, I have uh, a little traditional gathering called Anselm House. And uh, we there, there's a uh, just a group of us who get together some of the, the brightest minds uh, that I know of uh, in students and pastors in the area. And we read a classical text out loud. And then we usually have something sweet to eat or drink, uh, followed by some Socratic dialogue. Uh, tonight, we are reading Dante and his divine comedy. And so I've been reading through that right now. And uh, I think it has drawn my mind more and more to the happiness that awaits us as Christians uh, in that future and blessed hope, as the Apostle Paul calls it, the beatific vision itself. Um, What what an incredible uh, promise we have. John Owen, the Puritan, loved to talk about this, that that one day um, we will see God and uh, we we will be like him. I, that is just incredible. Yeah. And so I've been reading Dante uh, right now, and that's been on my heart. Yeah, very good, very good. Last signature bar question. What podcasts or sermons do you listen to? Oh, wow. Uh, Sermons or podcasts? Mm, That's a good question. You know, I I will admit that my head is usually in a book, and so I I don't have a long list of podcasts. I will name one, and it's Michael Horton and The White Horse Inn. Uh, He has been doing that for some time now. Uh, decades, I think. And I've always appreciated Michael. He's he's a friend and uh, one of the brilliant theologians of our day, but also very caring when it comes to uh, bridging uh, theology towards students and pastors and even lay people themselves. And so I've always appreciated that about him. Yeah, I'll I'll mention that one because I I think if uh, listeners uh, they go there, they you you will have a lifetime uh, of learning ahead of you. Yeah, that's a very deep archive that he has on his website, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. You have fun for days on there. Before we let you go, please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts, and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Well, uh, you can go on to that website called Twitter, <laughs> if you dare, if you dare. Uh, and you can uh, find me at Matt M. Barrett. And I usually post updates there. But you could also join me on the Credo podcast. And I'd love to have you. Uh, I sit down with some of the best theologians today. And we talk about theology in a way that's accessible, but also interacting with uh, some of the new challenges we face today, but but always with an eye towards uh, listening to the church before us. So join me on that Credo podcast. Uh, I have tons of fun with it, and I learn so much uh, as we go as well. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that we've got a link to your book, enter your Twitter handle, enter your podcasts um, in the description below, wherever you're watching or listening to this interview. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Hey, it's been an honor. Very grateful. And to the bar listeners, thank you again for tuning in and make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get the show every single Tuesday. And just like today, we have some top, top guests coming up that you do not want to miss out on. And remember to check out the bar podcast website where you can listen to Dwayne's huge archive of interviews, which will keep you nice and busy until next time to laugh for now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.